If you will join me in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, this morning we're going to look at verse 22 and we're going to go into chapter 4 and verse 1. If you want to join me in the blue ESV Bible in your seat back, you can find that on page 984, page 984. The title of our sermon this morning is Hard Work, Volume 2. We looked at this beginning last week. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are work, master, and obey. Well, anyone who has worked a few different jobs in their lifetime probably has a story or two about a bad boss along the way. Likewise, anyone who's ever been a boss in a workplace probably has a few stories about some pretty terrible employees. We've all been there. Time Magazine ran a story in 2010 during National Boss Day highlighting 10 of the worst high-profile bosses in American history. And one of the stories was about a man by the name of John H. Patterson. And Patterson was considered a, a pioneer in sales management and Uh, He was ever striving and wanted nothing less than to develop measurable ways to bring customers into his national cash register company. And it's still up and going. It's called NCR. If you ever work on a cash register, it's probably tied to his company. Well, Patterson trained his salesmen. He gave them highly tuned scripts to follow. He carved out clearly defined sales territories. He, He insisted on regular quotas that had to be met. But he was also known as a control freak, and he tried to impose his obsessions with cleanliness and healthiness on his employees. He mandated that everyone who came to work in the morning must take a shower on company time, and he even restricted certain types of food from being served in the company dining room because he thought they were unhealthy or unnecessary. So all those Christmas cookies went to waste. Patterson also liked to fire and then rehire his executives for the purpose of breaking down their self-esteem. In one famous instance, he fired his sales executive, Thomas Watson, who later went on to found IBM, by leaving his desk on the lawn for Watson to discover when he returned to the office. So nothing says you're fired like finding your desk on the front lawn of the office building. And now for every bad boss story, there's probably 10 bad employee stories to go with it. I was reading a forum where bosses were sharing stories of the worst employees that they had to fire. One story about a man who had a brand, he was brand new to the company. The boss was giving him the tour of the facilities and on the tour they stopped in the break room and the boss explained that there was to be no eating or drinking on the work floor so all food was to remain in the break room. While explaining everything, the man went to the refrigerator, he pulled out an apple, he pulled out a drink and a bag of cookies, and he sat at the table with the boss while he was given more instruction about the job, and he was left to watch some training videos for the rest of the day. Well, later that day, during lunch hour, another employee went to the boss's office to report that her lunch had been ransacked in the office refrigerator, and only one item was remaining from what she had brought. Well, the boss had assumed, of course, that the new guy got the wrong lunch bag and mistaking it for his own. But when asked about it, he replied that he did not, in fact, mix anything up. He didn't bring his own lunch, so he helped himself to whatever he could find in the refrigerator. He was fired in less than two hours on the job for stealing. You've all probably had those kinds of people 
in your office. Office refrigerators are notorious for lots of fights. I'm sure we all have cringeworthy stories about bosses, about employees, and it's just inevitable that we're going to have things like this happen in a fallen world where we're trying to manage or be managed by other sinful people, and we all have ideas about what's best, and we all have different motives for why we're working, or we have different commitments to the job itself or to the company we're working for, and so there will always be tension. And it plays out in movies and television shows all the time. And I'm certain it's played out in your own home and in your own experience if you've ever had any kind of job at all. The employees assume the management doesn't know what they're doing and they, they think they're trying to work to intentionally make life more difficult and the job more inefficient. The management assumes that the employees are lazy and are just there to get a paycheck and they care nothing about the future growth and success of the company. And everyone is looking suspiciously at everyone else. But, as Christians, we all know the Bible calls us to a different kind of attitude when it comes to our work. About being an employee, about being a leader, about being a boss. There are entire libraries of of books and videos and lectures about being effective leaders and about being good employees and how to work together and on and on and on. But really, if we would all strive to apply what we see in our text in Colossians today, our workplaces would be amazing. I think there are actually some great examples of this playing out in workplaces Uh, in certain places that I know about. So we're going to look at these principles and see what the principles of the text are as we follow on what we said about work last week, and more specifically, what we saw in the Proverbs about work and about being lazy. So as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're going to creep into the final chapter this morning And he's giving us a lot of very practical wisdom. And you'll recall, we've looked previously at what he said about the relationship between husbands and wives. And we looked at the relationship between parents and children. And so Paul continues in this same vein, but is now addressing servants and masters. Now we have to deal with the cultural context of this first, and then we can get to the applicable principles, so I don't want to overlook this question about servants and slavery that will inevitably come up in a text like this one. So let's read the text, and then we will talk about it. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, why does this text carry over into a single verse in chapter 4? Remember, the chapters and verses of the divisions are not a part of the original text. 
They were added in the late 16th century, so much later than the original texts were even written. So typically, these chapter-verse distinctions are quite good, but in this instance, we must admit, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's not inspired, though, those, those divisions. It's just a marker to help us keep our place as we're reading along. So one of the things I do when I read the Bible is I have a Bible that doesn't have any chapters or verse markings in it, and that helps to read it more devotionally without being caught up in those things. So just a little, a little tip for Bible reading there, but uh, the distinctions of chapter and verse don't really matter. Okay, so as we read this text, the big elephant in the room is to talk about bondservants and slaves. And their masters. Now we immediately think of slavery, and it's not without reason. Obviously, our own nation's history is sadly marred by the devastation of the slave trade and the, the dehumanizing reality of what that meant for individuals and for families. And our own great city has some of that history attached to it. However, the American history of slavery is not unique. And the Bible addresses the issue at various points because it was very much a part of the culture just as we have seen in our own history. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire and that was about one half of the entire population. Think about that. Half of the population were enslaved in some way. Now, even today, it's estimated that up to 45 million people are enslaved in one way or another around the world. Places like the United Arab Emirates have work populations that are comprised almost entirely of slave labor, while the upper class simply lives a life of luxury. There are different forms of slavery, but they all are what they are. There's no way to make it anything other than the reality, nor should we try. Christians have an obligation Christians have always had an obligation to oppose any and all forms of slavery. And in fact, it is because of Christians that the slave trade was eventually ended in the United Kingdom, in Europe, and in the United States. So, we recognize the absolute atrocity of slavery. We should never try to justify the practice in any way. Every human being created in the image of God has a natural right to live free. Nevertheless, here we see it is an issue that has been a part of the human story since ancient times. So how do we deal with this text of Scripture and those like it? Well, the context of why this comes up is because of the attitudes about work in the ancient world as a result of slavery. Because slavery was so rampant, most types of work were considered to be below the dignity or to be below the worth of any free man living within the empire. And almost everything was done by the slaves. That included things like even like medicine and teaching children. Ancient tradition, as far back as Aristotle, classified slaves as things, as living tools, the Romans classified farm implements in three classes. They classified them as the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. And the articulate were human slaves. One Roman writer even suggested that someone 
If someone bought a new farm, they should toss out the old slaves to die because they were broken tools and you wanted new tools that you could fashion in the way that you wanted them to work. So as you might expect, the situation for slaves was horrendous. And it would have, of course, been cause for a great deal of of depression and discouragement, a lack of sense of meaning and purpose in one's life. But then along comes Christianity and the preaching of the apostles. And you have guys like Paul saying things like, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think about that. You have people that were thought of as tools, as farm implements, and now Paul is saying, no, If you are in Christ, we are one with them as human beings created in God's image just like you were created as a human being in God's image. So we need that context to think about this text because while there are instructions here given to slaves and masters essentially, it doesn't mean that we want to claim that the Bible condones or promotes the practice of slavery. That's not the case. What is the case is that the Bible recognizes that people all over at different times and in different places are often in some very terrible circumstances and that they need instructions on how to live best within those circumstances no matter what those circumstances are to the glory of God. And so the Bible does not command, the Bible does not approve of slavery any more than it commands or approves of Christians being persecuted, for example. So when the writer of Hebrews tells the Christians, you joyfully accepted the plunderings of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. That does not mean that the Bible is supporting the plundering of Christian property and that it commands theft. It doesn't. It only means that if Christians have their property taken as a result of persecution, they should still rejoice because their heavenly treasure cannot be stolen or taken away from them. So when we're dealing with slavery, we cannot make the conclusion that the Bible is ever okay with the practice. Remember, Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 7, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So what is the instruction Paul gave to the Corinthians? If you're a slave, be content in the Lord even though your circumstances are not good because your freedom is not ultimately in this, on this earth. Your freedom is in Christ. However, he does tell them, if you're able to gain your earthly freedom, you should do it. It's a good and right thing. So liberty is ultimate. Liberty in Christ is ultimate. But you see this liberty in this earthly life is also desirable and important and pursuit by God's people. Now, all that being said, you can imagine that Paul's instructions here to the Colossians were revolutionary to those who would have heard them. In fact, in these very instructions, 
we have what served to bring the downfall of the institution of slavery in the West. But it was also immediately revolutionary in that it, broke, uh, it brought the fullness of a Christian's life, whether slave or master, to fruition. We have something beyond our circumstances to think about now. So with that being said, we need to think about this text's uh, present application, and it's largely tied now to our professional life, our occupation. As citizens of the world, we are either masters, in other words, bosses or employers or leaders, or those who are called to serve masters as workers, employees, or whatever. So as it pertains to our circumstances as free people in a relatively free society, how do we apply this important text? Three things this morning, hopefully you'll think about these in light of the Proverbs that we were able to look at Last week, the first thing we see in verses 22 and 23 is that Christians should do what is expected of them with a genuine heart. Look again, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Notice. The first thing that Paul addresses is that bond servants are to obey their earthly masters. How? He says, in everything. Now, you'll recall this is the same language that Paul used back in verse 20 with regard to children obeying their parents. And so in the same way we said then, we also assume that the master is not to require something of the servant that is sinful or that is a denial of the Lord and just because he commands it that, that the servant has to follow. No, this, this comes with this caveat that as long as it's not against the Lord or his commands, then you should do it. And this is Paul's point. You and I, no matter what our work is, we will be required to do things that we don't necessarily love doing. There are times in every line of work that we will have to do less than desirable tasks, right? Parents, we all love our children, but I haven't met a parent yet who just loves changing diapers. Most people enjoy eating good food, but very few people enjoy washing the dishes. Pastors love preaching, but we're often stuck in the weekly grind of administrative tasks and the difficult, sometimes lonely process of preparing sermons. Whatever your job is, there's something about it that you might really enjoy, but in order to do that part of it that you really enjoy, you also have to do other things that you don't necessarily want to do. It's, it's life in a working world. Emails and spreadsheets and Whatever you do, TPS reports, change orders, whatever, dusting and scrubbing and digging and weeding. And Paul is saying, even in those things, whatever those are, don't try to cut corners. Do what is expected of you. And he goes on to explain in more detail that it's not to be done, he says, by way of eye service. In other words, it's not to be done in a way that either attracts attention or avoids some kind of disciplinary action. The idea is that the person is only doing the work they're doing in the way they're doing it because the boss is watching or the boss isn't watching depending on what the action is. And we've all been in those situations, haven't we? I remember 
When I was in ranger school in the army, there were times when we were told to do push-ups or flutter kicks, and we were going to keep going, they said, until someone quit school altogether. So sometimes it could go on for a while, but we all knew that the instructor couldn't see everyone all the time. And so the understanding that we all had was that the guy who had the best view of the instructor, he would watch him, and as long as the, the instructor's back was turned, everyone would just rest. We'd all lay flat on the ground, but as soon as the instructor turned and looked, everyone was back doing push-ups or doing flutter kicks as if we were going on the whole time. And we've all, we've all been in those kinds of work situations, haven't we? Perhaps you've seen... These computer programs that have games built in them or with a single keystroke or the single button click on the screen, a spreadsheet will pop up that looks like you've been working all along because your boss has walked by your computer screen. So this is Paul's point. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't be that kind of worker. Christians have an obligation to fulfill their responsibilities. Whatever those are, and for whomever they're owed based on principle instead of pragmatism. And Paul reminds us, we are not people pleasers. Pleasing other people should be the, wor- the least of our concerns. We are, with sincere hearts, coming before the Lord as His servants, and so we are called to labor and serve to fulfill our obligations, ultimately to please Christ and not to please other people. And so it doesn't make sense to only do what we do when the boss is watching or to act a different way when he's not watching, right? If we have a sincerity of heart, if we have a proper reverence for the Lord, our actions will be governed by our sincere obligation to Christ. We aren't laboring ultimately for a paycheck or for our boss's praise. Those things are good, they're right, and we expect them when we're working hard and doing what's required of us, but we need to be able to look beyond these things and know that whether we're digging a ditch or preaching a sermon or cleaning up a kid's vomit, it's ultimately for Christ that we're striving, and it is for Christ, from Christ, from whom our reward comes. And I love what he says in verse 23. It's something I try to remind myself of regularly when I'm working on a tough task or something that's menial and unattractive to me. It's something I always want to remind my children of when they sit down to do their homework or when they have chores to complete around the house. How am I going to go about this task? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And that's it. And in part, what spurs on what is called the the Protestant work ethic is this very thing. During the Reformation, the Reformers were really teaching the importance of vocation and that no job was more noble or more important than the other, but all work that was done to the glory of God was legitimate work and that all work should be done not ultimately for the reward in the end, but for the glory of God. And notice how Paul says we're to work. He says we're to work heartily. He says work hard. Work hard. That gets back to what we looked at last week and and the contrast we saw in the Proverbs with, with laziness, with the sluggard who the Bible says is a fool. 
Now listen, we should be working hard at our vocations, not trying to find ways to to put it off or do something else or pretend like we're working when we're actually not. We should be the hardest workers at whatever we do. And when we lay down at night, when our heads hit that pillow at night, it should be with contentment that even though we might not have done everything we wanted to do or maybe things didn't all turn out the way we wanted, all said and done, we worked hard and we didn't waste time and we did it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that being said, if that high calling stood by itself alone, it would be supremely impossible. But it is accompanied by an enabling rationale. It is for the Lord. It is for the Lord. It is from the Lord. And we see this Secondly, in verses 24 and 25, we, we see that Christians should work with the motivations given by the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, We just saw that Paul said we should do all that we do with reverence or a fear of the Lord. The pagan slave served his master because he was bound by fear. The Christian slave served his master better because he feared God instead. It was despite his circumstances, you see. Working hard at our tasks from a heart brings glory to God. And so Paul goes on to give us some motivation for our hard work. And here's the reality. As far as our salvation is concerned, we are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, He doesn't accept you, He doesn't receive you because of anything that you have done or are doing or will do. You are accepted by God on the basis of Christ taking your place and fulfilling the law, dying in your place and taking upon Himself the penalty that was due to you being buried in the grave where you belong and being raised from the dead that you might have life everlasting with Him. That is the basis of our salvation. That by God's grace alone we come to faith in Christ, we're brought to the end of ourselves and we live upon His righteousness alone and not ours. And so when we look at this, we must recognize that this is not with relationship to our salvation. However, As far as our works are concerned, the reward that we will receive will be good or bad depending on our performance. The Bible does point to that. All believers, though under the ultimate forgiveness of Christ, will have their works judged. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Our works matter, brothers and sisters. And this can, of course, be good or bad news depending on how we live our Christian lives. But to the first century slave, this was largely good news because under Roman law, a slave could inherit nothing at all. And yet, here, he learned that he could receive an inheritance, a reward. God rewards faithful workers. This ought to be an encouragement to all of us. Whatever our lot is in life, whatever challenges we face, God pays us so well 
then when we get to heaven, we will wish that we had served him all the more because of what he has stored up for us. And as we serve Christ, as we, as we strive here in this earthly kingdom, we're storing up treasures in heaven through our good works for Christ's sake. And it's good and it's beautiful to serve the kingdom of God. And in so doing, we're, we're storing up for ourselves in heaven what we cannot even imagine. And here's another piece to that. You see that this isn't just to give and take in working and, and receiving. Paul said that the Lord is giving an inheritance as a reward. It's an inheritance. What does it require for you to receive an inheritance? Well, generally, more often than not, it means that you're the offspring of the one who's giving it. And that's what's being implied here. You're a son or a daughter of God. So all the more rewarding here for the slave that they were, they were not entitled to any kind of earthly inheritance. They weren't even generally entitled to any kind of earthly wage. But Paul says, work hard, do your best. It's all for the Lord. He has an inheritance already waiting for you, already stored up, ready to give to you. And that is your great reward. But we have to keep this in mind. Even though, even though we might live up to the biblical teaching about work, that doesn't mean everything's going to go well on the job, does it? You could be the best worker, you could be the hardest worker, and have the best results on your job, and it still not go well for you. That's just reality. The world has fallen. And as we saw last week, the results of the curse is that work is difficult, and sometimes the results of our work can amount to nothing in this life. We can face injustices and all sorts of things in the workplace. We may build a business that ultimately fails. We may be unjustly fired from our job. We may lose everything we have here and now because our industry goes away or our job market dries up. But when our motivation is right... This isn't something that should be a cause of anxiety for us. Why? Well, Paul reminds us, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you can sleep at night with a clean conscience that you serve the Lord in whatever you did, that you've done well, no matter what happens in this world with your work, you can be content. And I'll make this note too. Serving the Lord Christ in your job that doesn't mean you're spending your time reading your Bible and evangelizing your coworkers. You know what that is? That's actually stealing time away from your boss, from your employer, and justifying it by saying that you're doing the Lord's work. Well, you're not doing the Lord's work. Now, some of you have opportunities, and it's appropriate to do that without taking away from the job, but to set your work aside for any reason that is not approved by the one for whom you are working is ultimately not pleasing to God. We can't break one biblical principle in order to fulfill another. They're not in conflict, and if we make that be so, something is wrong. Remember the commandment? Number eight, do not steal. You can't steal from your employer and justify it by saying, well, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm talking about the Bible. That makes it okay. No, you're hired to do a job, and you must do it and do it well and find other opportunities to meet with your coworkers to talk about the Scriptures. Okay, last thing this morning, verse 1 of chapter 4. It teaches us that Christian leaders should remember that they too are under God's authority. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Justly and fairly. 
It's hard for us to really imagine, but those words would have been shocking to Paul's original audience. Under Roman law, the slaves had no rights at all. Like I said, they were thought to be tools for the farm. So justly and fairly, they're not even words in the master's vocabulary. But for the master, he has to live by the very same ethic laid out for the slave. He too has a master. His master is in heaven. And it's one and the same master in heaven that the worker was just called to serve. You are both serving the same master. And so listen, if you're an employer, if you're a boss, if you're a leader of some kind, if you truly realize that you must answer to God for the way that you conduct yourself with your employees, you will care about what happens to them. You will be concerned that they are paid properly. You will be concerned about their illnesses, their spouses, their children, their education. And along with this, you you may have more problems that come as a result. In fact, that kind of caring attitude toward your employees assures that you will have problems. But you will also have the fullness of Christ, which is far greater than a bottom line or a more efficient workforce or having to deal with inevitable problems that will come when people are taking advantage of your kindness and your generosity. But listen, your inheritance is in heaven, your reward is in heaven. And you have every opportunity as a leader to show the world what it truly means to love your neighbor as yourself. What a tremendous blessing to the world that Christians start their own businesses and run their own businesses according to those principles or or that there are Christians in every business sector of society. What an incredible world-changing thing that God's people are working in all kinds of different places around the world, working out these principles, showing great care and great concern for everyone who serves in what they're doing. Are you a leader? In some ways, you probably are, whether that's in your home or in your job, whatever that is. How do you think about and how do you interact with those who work with you or for you? Are justice and fairness on your mind? They're on God's mind. This is the exact thing he has called us to. Justice and fairness with those who work for us. You have a master in heaven. And your master in heaven is far more concerned with your heart than your bottom line. So how is this going to play out when you go to the office tomorrow? Or when you wake up and have to deal with screaming children in the morning? How are these principles going to work themselves out in our lives? That's Paul's word for us this morning in Colossians 3 and 4.